Well, happy fifth anniversary, Gospel Life Church. Um, this is an exciting day for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is because of how faithful the Lord has been over five years of us opening the Word of God together, reading it, proclaiming together from the very inception of our church, this is the Word of the Lord, thanks be to God together, hearing from the Word, um, hearing the Gospel told to us and and uh, allowing it to shape our hearts through the liturgy in the life of the church. And for the last five years, we've been able to do that every single Sunday morning, except for one time when there was a snowstorm. Many of us couldn't even get out of our driveways that morning. But even in the midst of pandemic and um, meeting uh, hunkered around fire pits in the Johnson's backyard and all of that, uh, the Lord has been so faithful in allowing us to gather weekly around his Word, and so we continue doing that this morning. You know, uh, this is our commitment, and it's our commitment in our first five years. It'll be our commitment in our next five years as well, um, and, and five years after that, and five years after that. So we need to pray uh, as we open up God's Word this morning that He would just continue to work through His Word to grow us in Him, to point us to the gospel, and declare it unto our hearts together. Lord, uh, we're thankful for this time. So thankful that, that we've had this time together now for five years, that we've been drawn together as a local body of believers, growing in you, seeing our friends and neighbors and coworkers hear about the good news, seeing people come to faith and repentance and baptism and, um, Lord, the way that you've just continued to grow us. And so thank you, Lord. Thank you for, for joining like-minded believers in our vision and mission um, as a church, and I pray, God, that you would continue to be faithful to us, and I pray that we'd be faithful as we hear um, the word proclaimed, Spirit of God, would you work to make us faithful? Would you work to um, open our eyes to see that which we can't see and to motivate us to godly living this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Zechariah, and um, as I've said before, this series is called Good news, like our, our series title, Good News for Disappointed People. Good news for disappointed people. And the reason for that series title is because I really think at its base, Zechariah is speaking to a group of people who are, who are looking around in the world, looking in the world around them, seeing the circumstances in which they find themselves, and they're deeply discouraged. But not just discouraged, there's a disappointment that's leading to a disillusionment with their calling and eventual despondency where they just throw up their hands, right? And so this is, this is what Zechariah is addressing. I think it's important for us to take a moment then after this final uh, vision of eight visions in this first section of Zechariah, take a moment and reflect on this, this question of disappointment uh, in the life of of believers in particular, because I think disappointment in the life of the Christian tends to manifest itself in two different ways, both of which I would argue we, we find in post-exilic, in the post-exilic life of Israel after exile, right? So um, there's actually a lot of commonality, a lot of parallels between Christians today, present-day Christians, and Israel returning out of exile. Both of them live in this partial coming, this, this in-between where there's this partial coming of a fruition of God's promise, promise, but there's a more glorious future realization of that promise that's yet to come, right? That 
We're both living in between an already and a not yet. Both of us have been called to a temple-building kind of work, and for both, the work appears to be charged with hope and yet laced with disappointment. In both time periods, God is obviously, you know, he's at work, he's doing great things, and yet many of the promises remain unfulfilled, and it can be difficult for people to see or even understand how God's promises could be fulfilled when we look around and see the direction that things appear to be headed, right? Like, in the midst of God doing great things, there can be a lot of pain and heartache, circumstances that we just don't understand, that we didn't foresee. It can lead us to a kind of disappointment that brings about the despondency that we talked about earlier, right? And I think the reason it leads to despondency is because our disappointment like post-exilic Israel, is often found with God himself. How could he let these things happen? If he cares for the church, how's he letting his church splinter? Like, why are so many pastors on one side of the divide renouncing the scriptures, just saying, oh, God didn't really say? Did God really say? He didn't really say that. While simultaneously claiming to have a high view of the scriptures... Why are so many pastors on the other side of the divide linking arms with very worldly means of attaining what they perceive to be their rights without any thought to laying down those rights when they become obvious stumbling blocks to the gospel, to gospel hearing in our culture, essentially just ripping sections like 1 Corinthians 9 out of their Bibles? Like, why does it at times look as though the church is failing to reach the culture? Why um, is proclaiming what God has spoken, proclaiming his revelation to the world around us, why is it so costly? Why is there a reputational cost, a social cost, a suffering cost? Like, it's easy to look around and see those who stand firmly opposed to God paying no such cost, in fact, seeming to reap a reward. And so we ask, why does it seem as though the promise that we cling to so dearly, that I talked, to, talked about already this morning, this promise that we cling to for the last five years at Gospel Life Church, that the Spirit of God working through the Word of God is ultimately what brings about Christian life, Christian living, it points us to the gospel, it, 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 um, cr- it makes us Christian, it grows us as Christians, right? Um, why does it seem like it isn't happening the way that we think it should be happening sometimes? Why, why is it such slow growth? We become disappointed, we don't understand why things are the way they are, and I, I think the ultimate reason for that is usually, the ultimate reason for disappointment in the midst of that is usually because we've fallen into either a religious moralism, or an irreligious fatalism. And there have been a few voices that have particularly um, written about and, and, and talked about this at length. Religious moralism, irreligious fatalism, both of those things are, are things that the book of Zechariah sets out to address. What do I mean by that? Well, God promised Israel he'd remove them from exile. You know, And there's this promise in Jeremiah, right, that it's actually upon removal from exile that God's going to Bring his kingdom. You know, that after that point, God through Israel will bring his kingdom to bear. And so um, many believed that if, if they did all the right things, if they held to the Mosaic law, you know, with a renewed enough fervor, if they came to the Lord in prayer with a unique enough passion, if they gathered with his people to declare his word with a persistent and faithful enough energy, right, God must owe them his promises to a certain extent. Of course he'll come to... Uh, bring his kingdom to bear through Israel if we're faithful enough. Okay? 
In other words, rather than his promises being rooted in sheer grace for the undeserving, which is absolutely what the Pentateuch talked about, this segment of post-exilic Israel started to believe if they were good enough, God would give them what they deserved. If they were faithful enough, right? If they were more deserving. You see this reflected in Nehemiah. You know, we talked about this a lot at, at great length in Nehemiah. That there was this understanding that if we just get the right reforms in place, if we're faithful enough in our reforms that... God, God certainly will bring about his kingdom. And that's why Nehemiah is so frustrated at the end of the book when he looks around and he sees that despite these reforms, sin still abides, right? It's actually also something that was very much a part of um, first century Israel. If you think I'm overstating my case, why do you think it is that, that the disciples of Jesus themselves, when they see a man who's blind since birth, ask Jesus this question. I mean, this is how steeped this understanding of things actually was in the culture of uh, first century Israel. They say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is the uh, common thinking of the day, right? Um, do you see the assumption embedded in that question? Any disappointing reality that I don't understand in this life, well, it must be the result of my failure Right? Because if you're faithful enough and strong enough in your faith and in your commitment to him, if you work up enough commitment, God owes you better than this. That's the understanding of it. If I'm doing enough, God should move a little bit faster in the church to unfold his promises. Right? Church planting should be a little bit easier if we're faithful enough. Right? They should happen... Things should happen more according to my timeline, more according to my expectations. I should be shielded from pain and difficulty and disappointment if I'm faithful enough. Like, that's, that's religious moralism. This is one of the reasons why many in the church actually are so disappointed and disillusioned today, because they, like many in post-exilic Israel, still kind of think that God owes them something. Um, on the other hand, many in post-exilic Israel looked around and found it much easier to join the surrounding pagan nations in their worship. And in the worldview, you know, like, and that's because in many ways it was easier, just like today, right? It's far easier to find popularity and pats on the back in surrounding culture by avoiding saying certain things, you know? Um, but rather than reflecting a religious moralism in which we think God owes us something, he's not making good on it, this way of viewing the world, it's, it's another kind of moralism. You know, there is kind of a shame attached to it where it's like, look how, look how, um, enlightened I am, you know. But essentially it comes to the point of throwing, it, it, we arrive there by throwing up our hands in this kind of irreligious fatalism where we say, well, I guess the God of the Bible can't really do anything about this anyway, so I might as well do what's easy. Do you see the similarities and the differences? You know, like both come out of a deep disappointment resulting in despondency. And often like one results in the other, you know, like after a season of religious moralism in which you think that God should operate more in line with your expectations because of how faithful you are, once you see that that's not how this works, once you experience the reality that that's actually not true, you know, um, man, it's easy to step right out of that into fatalism and throw your hands up and say, well, I tried. Zechariah, however, grabs these disappointed people by their lapels a bit and shakes them mercifully. He shakes them in order to get their attention. And what he shakes them with, because I said it's merciful, what he shakes them with is gospel hope. 
There's, there's good news that Zechariah has for these people that he holds out to them, not as like um, a middle way between their moralism and fatalism, their religion and irreligion, uh, because that wouldn't be good to have components of each, but kind of more in the middle. It's actually, as many have stated before, a completely entirely different way, a third way, an ultimate replacement to both moralism and fatalism, the only thing that could possibly enable them to face into the realities, to face into the circumstances that were causing the disappointment, and to instead see a renewed vision of God's promises and future hope. And Zechariah does that in five parts this morning in the text. Five parts, beginning with verses 1 through 3. Here's the first part. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw. And behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. So the first part of the text that Zechariah holds out to us in order to show us this good news, to get our attention with good news, is just the vision itself. Here's, as we've seen all throughout, um, each section begins with the vision. The vision, uh, this is actually the last, I've alluded to it already, uh, the last of these introductory visions in Zechariah. And in many ways, this vision, as we're going to see this morning, is really the culmination of all of the other visions. And it has to be a culmination of sorts because, um, th to some extent, because the, there have been some important unanswered questions so far in the previous visions, which the prophet now seeks to address. Particularly, there's an unanswered question from last week. It's like, have you ever watched a, a movie or a TV series, like a long one, or like a, read a, a really long novel, okay? And the author of the stories, the author of the story or the director of the TV series or whatever, um, just didn't even bother to tie up some rather serious loose ends that, that he wrote into the story as the seasons progress. And you know you're watching this and you're like, oh, I can't wait to see how that ties in. You know, it's getting in real deep. And then like the finale of season six of Lost comes around and you're like, wait, what? I'm sorry, you know? Um, there's this sense of betrayal, right? Like, it's like um, there, there, are, there are a few things that's annoying, mostly because you've invested so much energy. Sometimes it's emotional energy into the characters themselves. And you've invested a lot of time, and you want payoff from that investment, right? And what usually happens is because of that, you're less likely to trust something written or directed uh, by those people. Again, similarly here, Zechariah wants these people to know that they can trust the one who's speaking. They can trust that he's actually a God who's sovereign over all things. They can trust that he's speaking directly to the circumstance that they find themselves in, Okay. And that he's a God who ties up loose ends rather than leaving everything a mess. All right. And so he brings resolution to the question that all the visions so far have left open and that last week's left intentionally, glaringly open. So if you remember, super thankful to Justin preaching last week and for his ministry to us in the Word. Thankful to hear him again um, on the 13th. But do you remember the great reversal that he talked about last week? So just Justin mentioned... A great reversal. He said that God took the people out of Babylon, he took the people out of exile, and he brought them into the land of promise, and yet he took their sin out of the land of promise, and he placed it in Babylon. You see this great reversal in which their sin is moved out, 
All right, now we know that this pointed forward to a couple of different ways. It, it points to the cross of Christ. It, it points to, to the hope of his future coming even now, right? But for the people in Israel during this time who'd been in exile, who were continually oppressed and subjugated by surrounding nations, who hated God in every way, who were opposed to God and his teaching in every way, the question now is, okay, so like, this, we came into the land of promise, the sin left the land of promise and went into Babylon, but what are you going to do about the sin in Babylon? Right? Like, we've been brought out of Babylon. You told us in these visions that Babylon would be judged. You said, flee, up, up, flee from the land of the north, you remember? Because judgment's coming to Babylon. But according to the very first vision we saw, there's this rider on a horse who comes before Yahweh and he reports to him, Babylon's at rest, right? There's sin in Babylon. There's judgment due Babylon. But that report from the lead rider in chapter 1 still stands like they're unopposed. They're unchallenged. Despite their sin and rebellion against God, despite their merciless um, and unjust subjugation and oppression of God's people, they remain at rest in their wickedness. Is God just going to allow that to continue? You know, Chapter 1, verse 11, we patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? How long will you have no mercy by, by allowing their enemies to, to remain unchallenged is the question. And that is the unresolved question that this vision, this final vision of chariots now seeks to kind of tie up. It's that loose end that, that we're tying up together here. So for the final time in the series of visions, Zechariah lifts his eyes, transitional statement from the last vision, and behold, this uh, jars us a little bit, gets our attention on the primary object of the vision, four chariots. Four chariots, and these chariots are said to be coming out from between two mountains. They're described as bronze in color. So what's happening here? Just like with every vision, I think there are some things we can know with more certainty, and there are things that we're not quite as sure about. There's some differences in interpretation, right? And that's okay. So, um, for example, what do we do with these chariots? Well, that's more straightforward. Chariots themselves were almost entirely a military vehicle in the ancient Near East, and their symbolism across the board points to a military, heavenly host, judgment kind of symbolism, all right? Um, this is the host of the Lord. That's what I, what I think we can know with more certainty. And I think that's strengthened by what maybe is less certain, which is these bronze mountains from which they go out. Uh, okay, a lot of possible interpretations here. Some of them fall into the category of what I've called before creative speculation, where we, you know, we use these clever little bits and tidbits from various po points of history. Sometimes they're pretty obscure. Sometimes they're pretty challenged. And it sounds really clever, but um, it's not actually tied to the text. There's not actually many clues, right? So some of them fall into creative speculation. And there's a lot of different arguments. I'll just I'll share with you what I think is the most persuasive. Um, the interpretation that makes the most sense in this context appears to be that these bronze mountains are an allusion back to the two bronze pillars in the temple. And the reason I, th I find this perhaps persuasive, right, that this could be why these mountains are bronze, is for a few different reasons. First of all, we find a lot of temple work, language in Zechariah. What, what have we seen so far in these visions that God peop, God's people are called to do? Like what kind of work are they called to? They're called to repent, right? 
in these visions, and, and part of the work of repentance is rebuilding the temple and um, going about the business of temple work and trusting in the means that God has provided for the ministry of Israel. And so um, you find a lot of temple language here, I think, could be an allusion to then the temple. The other reason is because of what these two bronze pillars in the temple were. Um, they both represented the entrance into God's presence, and they served as the entrance to the temple. So here are these bronze pillars through which you enter the temple, representing in a symbolic kind of way entrance into the heavenlies, entrance into the presence of God. This phrase, the two mountains, listen, um, I don't think this is splitting hairs. It's, it's, it's legitimate. It contains the article. In other words, it's not just two random mountains, but the two mountains. If we're in a small town and I say, meet me at the coffee shop, you don't say, well, which coffee shop? No, it's, I said the coffee shop, the one that's there, right? Like this, this actually would be, um, normally, it would specify something in the text that's already known to its readers. Part of the reason I'm persuaded that they represent this entrance into the heavenlies is that these chariots appear to be sent out from the heavenlies. I mean, they are actually. In the text, when we read the vision, where are these chariots sent out from? From the presence of God into the world to do his bidding. Okay, so um, that's what I think is probably going on here by way of the symbolism. But each of these chariots, which is the main focus, they're pulled by at least two horses, maybe more. And each one is made distinct by the vision of col the colors of the horses. Right. So um, one chariot is made distinct because it, it has red horses. The other black, the other white, the other dappled. Dappled's like multicolored, spotted, okay. And again, avoiding creative speculation, not being given, as far as I can tell, any clues about what these colors might represent in this context or in Old Testament literature. Let me suggest to you again, that the, like I did in, in chapter 1, that the reason the horses are colored this way is because that's what color the horses are. Um, in other words, this simply represents four distinct groups. So each, each one has to have a distinct color to represent each distinct group. And these are the colors that were the most common in first century Israel, right? So um, the reason we see four is the same reason we've seen four up to this point, I'm going to argue. Four horns, four winds, right? It, it represents the four corners of the world, the four points on the compass. In other words, these four chariots representing the host of heaven will now go into the entirety of the earth. They're sent into the entirety of the earth. So that's the vision itself. The vision is the host of heaven being sent out. The host of heaven being sent out. But the question is why? Why are they being sent out? And that's where we move from the vision to now the reason for the vision. The reason for the vision, verses 4 and 5, then I answered and said to, to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So the hosts of heaven have presented themselves before the Lord. They've been sent out to the four winds of heaven. We've seen that language already. Um, this word for wind, though, before we get there, this word for wind, it's the same word that we find in Hebrew for spirit. And in fact, we see the same word in this context. In verse 8, if you want to just quickly set your eyes there. Behold, those who go to the north country have, this is, the, this is Yahweh speaking, behold, those who go into the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So, so um, this word for winds here uh, in verse 5 is the same as the word for spirit, verse 8, and this is a play on words that we're going to come back to in a minute. But here in, in verse 5, I think it's referring to the winds of God's judgment. 
We've actually seen it used that way already in Zechariah. If you wonder how we arrive at that interpretation, we've seen it referred to as the winds of a storm blowing in all directions. Do you remember in chapter 2, who was being judged by these winds? It was Israel, right? Um, Chapter 2, verse 6 reads, For I have spread you abroad as four winds from the heavens, declared the Lord. It's, It's talking about the scattering of God's people in exile. And this is a fairly straightforward, it's fairly common uh, rendering of winds in the Old Testament. They're even connected to chariots in judgment. So I think that's pretty certain. But the question is, okay, but if, if we already saw in chapter 2 that the winds of judgment have blown against Israel, why this allusion, allusion to ju- judgment again in chapter 6? Well, because of the unanswered question that we've already discussed. What has God prepared to do about that sin in Shinar, in Babylon? What's he going to do about the enemies of God? Will they continue to flourish? And we see this highlighted even more in the text when we realize this phrase, presenting themselves before the Lord, has an even stronger sense of being sent out from the Lord in judgment. Yes, they are before the presence of the Lord, but they're before the presence of the Lord as as we're going to see as he sends them in judgment. So Old Testament scholars like Rogland, Pedersen, they actually translate verse 5 this way. Listen to this translation. I'll read it a couple of times. And the angel said to me, these are the four winds of the heavens going out on account of the taking of a stand against the Lord of the whole earth. Let me read that again. And the angel said to me, these are the four winds of the heavens going out on account of the taking of a stand against the Lord of the whole earth. In other words, the reason these horses are going out is on account of those in the world who've made themselves God's enemies, who've taken a stand against the Lord of the whole earth, who've sought to wage war against the Lord of the whole earth. That's why they're going out. It's like Aragorn talking with King Theoden and saying, ride out with me. Ride out with me against God's enemies. Ride out with me against our enemies. Why would they ride out? Between the gates of Helm's Deep? on account of the enemies of Middle-earth, on account of their evil and wickedness, on account of those who had taken a stand against the one true king, right? They ride out now to meet them. And that's the reason for the, the vision. The reason is on account of those who have made themselves God's enemies. So we saw the vision itself, the host of heaven being sent out. Why were they sent out? That's the reason of the vision, on account of those who've made themselves God's enemies. But now, where, where do they go? Like, Where is it that God's enemies reside? That's where we see now the direction of the vision. The direction of the vision. Verse 6, the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country uh, and the white ones go after them and the dappled ones go toward the south country. So there's different interpretations in terms of which colored horses are actually going which direction here according to the the way this is worded. Don't Don't get caught in the weeds. The point is that these chariots are going north and south. That's the direction that they're headed. North and south. Now, some have suggested that because there are four chariots being blown by the four winds, you know, that there's, there must be some kind of a mistake in the text, uh, that, that the author probably intended to say that they went north, south, and east and west. But I don't think that's actually true. I'll tell you why. We, we already know that the land of the north or the north country always throughout the Old Testament refers to Babylon. We talked about that before. We know that Babylon represents the world order that stands against God throughout the scriptures and here in Zechariah. 
In this case, though, without speculating, probably the best and most straightforward reasons that they only sent go north and south is that these were the routes into Israel, the primary directions that an enemy would use to lay siege to Jerusalem. And indeed, when Babylon came upon Jerusalem, yes, they came from the land of the north, but they flanked around to the south as well. So here we have, um, this, this is the direction that they go. They're going the way that the enemy would go in and out. And so they're going out to meet them. We have four chariots extending to the four corners of the earth, and now they're headed in both directions that any enemy might use in order to meet them. In other words, the direction is everywhere. There's no place on this earth that they do not patrol, as we'll see. And, and they stand against every enemy of the Lord, everyone who's made themselves opposed to God who's taken a stand against the Lord. And this has far-reaching theological application because by the time we get to the New Testament, we come to find you know, the Apostle Paul is very clear in Scripture. This applies to everyone. It applies to everyone. He says in Romans 3 and Romans 5, this is all of our stories. Everyone is an enemy of God. He says in Colossians, was an enemy of God. That, that was all of our status. You know? um, he says in Colossians 1 that once we were alienated from God, hostile in our minds. The direction of this judgment is everywhere, to ev applying to everyone. More on that later, more on that later. What exactly do these writers do, though? So that's, that's where they're headed. What do they do? That's where we move now from the direction of the vision to the activity of the vision. Verse 7, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Okay, there's this eagerness. There's this heightened anticipation for this activity. Here we see in, in this verse that we've taken a step backward in the timeline. I think this is before the horses have been sent out. They're waiting in God's presence for the command to finally go, and they're beyond eager. The text tells us they're impatient. These strong horses and chariots are perhaps pacing back and forth. Have you ever seen a horse in a stable after it's been worked out prior to a race? You know, they're they're stomping, they're kicking, they're, there's an eagerness, they're ready to go. You know, there has to be a calming, because otherwise these horses can actually injure themselves in the stable bef before they get the chance to run. Here we see something similar. There's an eagerness on the part of the heavenly hosts to go now and to do according to the Lord. Because remember, the host of heaven has returned, and they begged for God to do something in mercy for the people of Israel against God's enemies that was in chapter 1, and here we are in chapter 6, and they're on the cusp of it. Finally, you know, there were no uh, chariots attached to this before, but now you know, there's chariots. They're on the cusp of being able to go, and they're chomping on the bit, and God says, go. Patrol the earth, and they stampede off the patrol, but in this case, the patrolling isn't um, the same kind of patrolling we saw in chapter 1, which was more surveillance. The riders without chariots, ranging about, coming back and reporting to the Lord. In this case, they are attached to chariots, this military vehicle. They're going out to bring God's justice to bear against sin. So that's the activity of the vision. It's an activity in which there's like this heightened anticipation, but the activity is to bring, finally, to bring judgment to bear against those who've made themselves God's enemies. And so what happens in the end? Well, that brings us finally to the result of the vision. What's the result of all this? Verse 8. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north 
country. Now we see again, you know, okay, so the, the north country, the land of the north, referring again to Babylon, representing the world order that stands opposed to God, it's been put down. We see another stunning reversal, you know, while, while in chapter 1, and it's really a stunning reversal from the very beginning of all the visions, because while in chapter 1, the nations were at rest, God's wrath was not at rest. It was bubbling up. You know, the four winds were getting ready to blow, okay? There was a, there was a tension, there was a pressure, there was a building of God's wrath. So the nations were at rest, God's wrath was not at rest. Here in this final vision, God's wrath is finally at rest. Because it's poured itself out in judgment. And the nations are no longer at rest, unchallenged. They've been completely decimated. Do you, do you see how this works? One commentator writes, Whereas God had driven wickedness to the land of Shinar in the previous vision, in this vision his spirit is, set, is said to be at rest in the same region. How could God's spirit now be at rest in Shinar? Only if sin has been dealt with there. His wrath has been satisfied. That's what this text is teaching. God's wrath has been satisfied. Now, your response might be to all of this. Okay, so that's what, that's what this text is teaching. Okay, hold up. Time out, Jeremy. I, see, I thought you said, I thought you said that Zechariah is holding out good news for disappointed people, right? No, what you said at the front end, like, People are disappointed, and so here's Zechariah holding out good news. And this is the culmination of these visions that are said to also hold out good news as a part of this. But this isn't good news. This is judgment. This is like God's wrath language. How can God's wrath or judgment pouring out on people, pouring out on the world, how could that ever possibly in any sense be good? And my answer is, you're right. This is wrath and judgment language. But also, yes, it is, it is good news. This is good news. Okay, now, um, give me the benefit of the doubt. Hear me out. Let me give you three pastoral reflections on what I mean by that that I think will help us apply the text as we close. First of all, the central theme for this passage, like what I believe that centrally this theme is... is uh, this. Scripture is trying to communicate to us by way of theme is this, and I'll say it a couple of times. The reality of God's coming judgment motivates the believer to repentance. The reality of God's coming judgment motivates the believer to repentance. So remember, all these visions have to do with like what repentance will look like in the life of the people. God's mercy precedes the activity of repentance, but here's how Here's how things should look now. Here's what your lives should look like. And it ends with this, this um, message of judgment, this reality of God's coming judgment. And that actually motivates, it's meant to motivate believers to repentance. Now, I believe this to be an immensely biblical reality, right? So um, I wish I had time to go from Jesus' teachings in Luke that directly connect the reality of God's judgment with repentance. And... The Pauline texts that, that directly connect the reality of God's judgment with repentance. And, the, and, and Peter, the Petrine texts that, that directly connect 
the, the coming judgment, the reality of God's coming judgment with repentance. I wish we had time to get into the book of Acts in which we see direct connections, right? Like it's immensely biblical, but it's important to understand how it happens and how it's happening here in Zechariah chapter 6. In other words, the reality of God's coming judgment doesn't motivate us to repent simply out of some reactionary fear-based mentality where we're so frightened of God and the concept of hell and judgment that we'd better toe the line so that the Christian life is always kind of walking on eggshells worried that, you know, I better tell, oh, I better tell the line because God's going to judge me. Now, just as an aside, let me say, relatedly, there are warning passages in Scripture. We did get finished with Revelation, in which I think legitimately you find a plea for Christians to, like, examine themselves. There are sections in Scripture where it's like, okay, here's your stated belief in the gospel. Here's what you claim to believe, right? And the question is, how do you live your life? Do you live your life in line with that gospel? Because if you don't, examine yourself to see if you actually believe. Now, that, that's legitimate because judgment's coming and judgment's certainly attached to that. So in that sense, it can be a motivator for repentance. Of course, we should be terrified of judgment. That would be an appropriate response if you actually believe that judgment was due to you. You should be afraid. There should be a turning. Okay, but, but the way in which it motivates us in Zechariah 6, like honestly, this isn't meant to be a fear thing for Israel. It's meant to be an encouragement. I, th I think that's the way they would have read it and understood it in the first century. It's not by demonstrating um, that, that God's going to judge you, so be afraid. He's not trying to shock Israel into to, like, this fear-based response. He's trying to tell them, look, you can actually trust God's sovereignty. Like, we can trust that he is truly in control of all things. We can trust that his word will come to pass, that his enemies will not flourish forever, that he is in control, that you don't need to somehow take things into your own hands to try to deal with these things, that God's going to deal with them. In the meantime, proclaim his good news. Proclaim his word. He's in control. These words in Zechariah 6 weren't intended primarily as a warning to Israel to repent or be judged in which they'd be fearful, but rather in this context, honestly, in the first century, I believe they'd be heard as an encouragement to Israel that God will judge those who stand opposed to him and who persecute them, kind of like that message to uh, Israel in Egypt when they're in slavery, my deliverer is coming. Like a message to Egypt in slavery, a message to Israel in Egypt in slavery that says God will judge Egypt wouldn't be like, oh, scary. It'd be like, when? Like, it's an encouragement. God's going to make good on his promises. He'll judge the wicked, right? There, there's justice that's going to be brought to bear. He's in control. So it's an encouragement to Israel that he'll judge those who stand opposed to him, who persecute them, so they should stand firm and trust that God's going to do as he said he's going to do. Pedersen writes this. He says, the rhetorical effect of this vision is to assure the readers and hearers of the book that Yahweh is sovereign over the nations and his purposes will prevail. That's it. That's it. That's the center here. It's to encourage the nations. It's to assure them. It's to give them assurance that God is sovereign over the nations. His purposes will prevail. They can trust him and that changes everything, which leads us secondly then, right? If that's true, we have the saying, and it is, we have the saying at Gospel Life Church. We say it a lot. It's not original to me. But we say it a lot because we see it reflected in so much of Scripture. And that's this. There's this repeated saying that I want us to kind of know. It should, it should shape our culture here a bit. What you believe about your future is the most formative thing about you. Right? So what you believe about your future, your future hope, the hope of your heart, that's what forms you the most. And we see that again here. You know, it's not actually your circumstances that leave you disappointment. Disappointment doesn't flow 
primarily from your circumstances. It's, it's what you believe about whether or not in the end God actually will put all things to rights. You can have two people who are in the exact same circumstance, you know, and they look around and they see the exact same thing. And one of them, oh boy, I don't know, this looks really troubling, I'm really afraid, and I'm not sure that I can trust God. And the other one, that it's like God is, I believe with all my being that God is sovereign over all things, and in the end, he will put things to rights. Those two future hopes will be the guiding determination as, as to how that, those circumstances shape our response, right? It's what we believe about our, it's the hope of our heart. So the question then, secondly, is what's the hope of your heart? And finally, you might say then, third, okay, third pastoral reflection. You might say, okay, um, the reality of God's coming judgment motivates believers to repentance. That's what this text is teaching. It doesn't motivate us by fear, but it motivates us by encouraging us that God is sovereign, that he will make good on his promises. All that's true. So, therefore, I should have this steadfast trust in the Lord, but why should I trust him? Like, I don't know, Jeremy. I'm looking around in this world and I'm seeing things look like they're, they're unraveling a lot of times, a lot of days. It's hard um, to not be disappointed. How, how do I know I can trust him? Like, on what grounds do we trust him? On these grounds. Jesus is the ultimate place in which these visions come to fruition. We can, we can trust in the God of the scriptures when we experience trouble because this isn't some trouble that we experience but that God was exempt from or removed himself from. Rather, he stepped into the trouble and into the pain and into the brokenness. And Jesus is the one upon whom God's wrath is finally set to rest. The four winds of judgment finally, in a full and final way, blow upon him rather than us. The scriptures make it clear we're all deserving of judgment. We've all made ourselves God's enemies. We were all once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, deserving God's wrath. What does that do? Well, that puts, that throws uh, religious moralism out the window. Like there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. But that wrath was satisfied by the blood of the cross. Jesus taking the sin and anger and wrath that we deserved the four winds of judgment upon himself so that God's spirit could be at rest in Shinar, could be at rest in us, with us. God's spirit can be at rest with us, though we were enemies, so that we can now be reconciled to him in his body of flesh by his death. And that puts irreligious fatalism to death because it means that our suffering is not just some random display of something God can't control, but rather the sufferings of this present time that are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us because Jesus came for that very purpose. This is the reason that he came. And Jesus will come again. Jesus will come again to bring final judgment. The rider on the white horse in Revelations 11 through 19, 11 through 16 is really a, a, a complete picture of these riders here. So we're able to live in a world in which we experience persecution, even loving our persecutors, you know? Like there are those in the world that mock Christians openly, that desire to, they desire in every way the, the harm of those who might share a message that 
comes from the proclaimed word of God, right? There are those who, who desire for that to be outlawed, to be gone, right? Okay, so there are those who persecute the church. We can love our persecutors. We can desire their good. We can pray for them to turn from sin and to Christ before it's too late. We can lay down our rights because we know that sometimes our rights can become stumbling block to gospel hearing so that they might turn to Christ before it's too late because we know that in the end, everything will be made right by Christ and we can trust him because of what he's done for us, not because of something we need to do for ourselves. And at the table, we find the central event that gives us the ability to trust in him when everything around us appears desperate. Because in this moment, in time, in history, Jesus came, his body was broken for us, and his blood was shed for us. The wind of God's judgment blew upon him so that God's wrath would be at rest with us. Therefore, this preaches that gospel, this preaches that good news that Zechariah holds out in the first century to disappointed people that, we, that, that those circumstances might no longer drive us to a disappointment and disillusionment and despondency, but, but might rather lead us to a, f- a courageous faith that continues to proclaim him in a broken world, right? So we preach this to one another on Sunday, that we might scatter throughout the week and preach this to our friends and neighbors and coworkers who do not believe. This meal is for believers. Um, if you're here and you're a believer, we invite you forward to take the elements back to your seats. If you're here and you're a skeptic and you're not sure what you believe about these things, observe, ask questions, but now is the time to, to come forward if, if you are a believer and take these elements with you back to your seats.